0: Welcome back to Music for PhDs. Today we're talking to Jared Miller about his piece, Undersea Above Sky. It has a really lovely story about generosity and paying it forward, and we'll get to hear Jared tell us all about it in his own words. We'll also talk to Dr. Kate about what exactly the conductor is doing up there. We're going to chat about some research on how smaller groups of musicians keep time, and how expressive body language leads to better performances. This podcast is sponsored by ENCODA, the home of digital sheet music. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.
1: It was always my dream to be a composer when I was like a little nerdy uh, seven-year-old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is probably kind of an unusual dream for a seven-year-old. <laughs> Did you play in any high school bands or anything like that? Or, or was it always classical?
1: Um, I played in high school band for a couple of years. And I sang in choir for a couple of years. And then also in high school, I really got into um, acting Uh, in the school plays, so I was actually in a couple of musicals, (laughs) including one where I had to sing the lead role, which was really funny because I was in, like, prime uh, voice change mode at the age of 16, and the part was, like, just a little too high for me, so um, that was fun. (laughs) It actually was really fun, so I was definitely sort of involved in a lot of different types of music growing up.
0: So, uh, it sounds like you've been composing music pretty much since you started playing music. Did that continue on through, you know, to your childhood, adolescence, school, like, or, you know, was there a point where you stopped and came back to composing?
1: Well, you know, in eighth grade, which was my first grade, uh, first year of high school, um, I decided to take a one year break. Well, at that time, I guess I thought it was, uh, Indefinite break from piano, so I didn't play piano or write music for a year, and it was the worst year of my life um, but um you know uh, after that, I sort of reapproached piano and um, composition with a renewed passion for it, and haven't really relented ever since then
0: so you've been composing music for a long time, so this answer may not be static, like you might have had different answers from different parts of your life. Um, but I'm curious, in a general sense, what inspires you to write a piece of music? Like what makes you think, oh, I, I need to like pick up a pencil or run back to the piano like right now?
1: Hmm. An impending deadline is um, <laughs> always- <laughs> always a, a, a great catalyst to get me <laughs> to go to the piano or go to the manuscript paper or the computer and start writing. It really depends on the piece that I'm writing. There's not really one singular moment that like makes me get up and go to the piano or manuscript paper or the computer. There's rarely a eureka moment. Usually I'll begin thinking about a piece that I'm going to write months in advance. The kind of impression I want to create, the kinds of things I want to experiment with, have that sort of organically develop in my mind. So when I do write the piece, I sort of have this wealth of ideas that I can draw upon. And um, it makes the writing process a little, it can make it a little easier. You know, usually when I'm thinking about the next piece I'm going to write, or a future piece that I'm going to write, I'm usually working on another piece that I'm actually writing so it's sort of like almost a not cyclical process but overlapping process i guess
0: i'm always curious like how much of your environment like being in victoria soaked into that like were your pieces very inspired by your time there or like the landscape or being back on the west coast or um how much of that kind of filtered in
1: well, it depends on um, the piece, the particular piece that I was writing, because, you know, certain pieces were definitely were definitely kind of inspired by my surroundings. For instance, uh, one element that I started to incorporate in my pieces when I was composer in residence with Victoria was a lot of bird sounds like seagull, uh oh, seagull they're called. And, you know, that's, for me, very evocative of the West Coast and the coastal Mm -hmm. environment that's there. And then other things were a little more um, less to do with the nature and more to do with my personal connection with the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one piece that I wrote entitled Palimpsest was written after I helped my parents moved homes from the home I grew up in to uh, the home in which they were retiring. And so I was very much feeling very nostalgic about my childhood as I went through old boxes of things. And, oh, totally. um, you know, I tried to evoke this in the music. So, yeah, uh, definitely there were certain aspects of being on the West Coast uh, in that environment, both physical and more emotional, that inspired some of the works that I wrote for the Victoria Symphony.
0: And so this is a good lead to Undersea Above Sky. So how did this piece come about?
1: I applied for a composition competition last year called the SOCAN Young Composers Awards. And I didn't win an award in the competition, but I won this opportunity called the National Youth Orchestra of Canada Residency Award. So I got this news, and it was a really cool-sounding opportunity. But I also wasn't... Hmm... So, the piece that I submitted had already been performed, and I didn't want to take away the opportunity for another composer. So, I actually reached out to, to the SoCan Foundation and the NYO and just sort of said, Hey, you know, I, I really appreciate this opportunity, but um, I think this could benefit somebody else a lot more. Um, and then, much to my surprise, uh, about a month later, I got an email from the executive director uh, saying that they wanted to commission a piece from me for, um, this past summer's concert tour. So I was thrilled, like absolutely thrilled at that information because, you know, I've essentially grown up hearing all the recordings that the National Youth Orchestra have done on Air Canada because, uh, they put, (laughs) (laughs) they put all the recordings on Air Canada. So I've, um, yeah, I was um, very excited to learn about that news.
0: Cool. So they um, so they wanted to commission you for a particular piece, and the uh, the Uorthokrista. How many players is this? Like, how big of a group are we talking?
1: I think it was about a hundred players. Wow. It might be like 60. We'll
0: call it 80, maybe. That's like a comfortable in-between. So uh, so you're going to, to write this commission. Um, it's for quite a large group of musicians. So what was the inspiration for Undersea Above Sky as a, as a concept?
1: Well, I was thinking about many things. And one was the particular size of the orchestra and how it was the largest sized ensemble I've ever had the opportunity to compose for. You know, I thought about different different things you could do with such a large number of players that take up such a large amount of space on stage. Just musically you can have them play extremely loud and extremely lar- make extremely large, loud sounds. But you can also have them play extremely quietly and have this very ethereal quality where you have people on the stage playing in this very diffuse way, and creating this very fragile sound. So I wanted to play around with that juxtaposition, and um, in tandem with this, I was thinking a lot about climate change and how it's wreaking havoc upon the Earth, you know, these days. And and so I thought about the orchestra almost as an analogy for planet Earth in this sense, where you know, on one hand, it can be wild and bold and majestic. But on the other hand, it can be extremely fragile. And so I wanted to uh, tie in this juxtaposition as well. You know, this very sort of, spar- not sparse texture, but very diffuse texture. I incorporated a lot of um, bird sounds, for instance, and wind sounds. Very almost explicit nature sounds in two ways I was sort of thinking about this, the size of the orchestra, but also um, the different sorts of sounds and colors and effects I could get from the individual instruments of the orchestra.
0: So you you kind of touched on this already with the sort of like the big loud sounds and then the very quiet ethereal sounds. Um, This piece is about 12 minutes long, and uh, Mm -hmm. it does have this really big rise, like this very large crescendo, and, and then it Gets very very quiet. Like even if you're just looking at the kind of like the sound wave file, you can see visibly this like huge peak and then it drops off. So yeah, do you want to talk about the structure and like kind of what you were thinking with with building it in like that?
1: Well, um, that's sort of at the heart of these contrasts that I wanted to create. That part, that particular part that you're talking about, where the music comes to this massive thunderous climax and then everything cuts out and when everything cuts out like that it's very much uh it's very common in a lot of um pieces of music you have that loud sort of crash bang boom and then you have nothing or you have silence um but i wanted to sort of maybe do something a little different and have this very sort of um have something very quiet come out of that. So when people are expecting silence, they actually hear, oh, wait, no, there's no silence there. There's something going on. And so it kind of makes, um, I guess psychologically, it sort of makes the audience like sit there and listen a little bit more with more act- in a more active way. So yeah, I had. Um, the three flutists playing what are called whistle tones. And it sounds like winds whistling. Um, It's a really cool effect, but it's extremely quiet. So, yeah, I wanted to create that sort of moment where everybody sort of just stops and listens.
0: Yeah, for sure. That kind of waiting with bated breath kind of moment.
1: Yeah, plus, I mean, it is a very quiet and delicate um, sound that's created. So I think it's sort of almost epitomizes, in a lot of ways, the fragility of, of planet Earth and where we are with uh, the climate in this moment.
0: Do you think this piece is hopeful about the planet and the climate? Or is it kind of open to interpretation?
1: You know, there was, um, I got a review in Toronto, and um, I couldn't have put it better myself than how a um, reviewer put it, but she said it was my love letter to planet Earth. I really did appreciate that comment. So uh, I don't know, for me, it was kind of a reminder of what's there to for us to protect. So I don't know if that's hopeful or um, or what, but uh, that's that's what I was thinking.
0: it's a really lovely piece thank you Um, alright so hard stuff's over lightning round (laughs) Uh, great Uh, how do you take your coffee
1: Uh, with soy milk in a beer mug
0: (laughs) (laughs) really that much coffee
1: (laughs) it probably accounts for most of my acid reflux and anxiety
0: (laughs) well you do say you're a morning person maybe this has something to do with it nah if you could be any animal, what would you be? A dog. Yeah, they, some of them lead, lead pretty good lives.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you have pets? Do you have a dog?
1: Uh, no, but I really want one. And I'm actually going to be dog sitting for the next couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. So um, I love, I'm a, definitely a dunkle.
0: What's your favorite time of day? Morning. Morning. Yes, for sure. With the <laughs> cup of coffee mug of yes do you have a favorite movie
1: um yeah i have several
0: are they musicals
1: um no <laughs> no Amadeus, amadeus is one though i also love forrest gump call me by your name i like devil wears prada that's a really hilarious movie and just brilliantly acted
0: do you uh do you have any guilty pleasures
1: I don't feel guilty about any of my pleasures, so I don't know what would be a guilty pleasure. But I love like n- really cheesy 90s techno when I'm working out. I'd be so embarrassed if anybody like at my gym actually heard what I was listening to while I was working out because it's just like it's so cheesy.
0: Before I get into the painting, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor Encoda, the Spotify of She Music. ENCODA is a subscription app that lets you practice, play, and perform your sheet music. They have literally thousands of titles and millions of pages, all from licensed publisher catalogs. Download ENCODA for a free trial on the App Store today. That's N-K-O-D-A. So the painting I did to Undersea Above Sky really stands out in my mind as challenging. And it's nothing to do with the music. I loved listening to this piece. And I also wanted to do justice to the message that Jared intended. So I had a palette picked out of pale blues and sea greens, and I really had a lot of oceanic imagery in my head. But I also had a new type of paper, which I'd set up on a piece of cardboard backing. And as soon as the music started to play and I started to make marks, I realized that the paper was responding really differently, and the corrugated backing was giving me some texture and some rumbling that I hadn't really accounted for. So, this piece was actually really challenging for me. I was trying to focus on the music, but I was also sort of dealing with these um, setup changes. I didn't have very high hopes, but surprisingly, this turned out to be one of my favorite pieces. I love the colors and the atmosphere, and I think it has a very peaceful vibe. What's next for you? Do you have any concerts or releases coming up?
1: Um, Yeah, I have a few things coming up. I know that in December, the Montreal Ensemble, Ensemble Para Mirabo, is um, giving the Quebec premiere of one of my pieces, Leviathan, which is for um, six players in electronics, and um, takes its inspiration from whale Whale Song. And then in January, I'm just finishing up this piece now, the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and Sarah Davis Buchner are going to be giving the world premiere of my first piano concerto, Shattered Night.
0: Are you going to get to go to Winnipeg to see it?
1: Yes, in the heat of January. No, I, I'm really, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm also one of the mentor composers for their, um, they have a composers institute there. So not only will I be, um, You know, hearing my music rehearsed, but I'll be hearing a lot of other composers and going to a lot of other concerts, including one with a bunch of young composers uh, who applied for this Composer Institute and um, helping to mentor them. So I'm very much looking forward to that too. I love teaching and from what I've seen, it looks like it's going to be a really phenomenal group of young composers.
0: This would have been such a cool performance to see live. The National Youth Orchestra of Canada hovers around 80 performers between the ages of 16 and 28. So it's basically the farm team for classical musicians. So they have a conductor and they have sheet music, but how do all these musicians manage to stay together? Some of my friends are teachers and they tell me it's pretty much impossible to get 10 teenagers in a line together, let alone 80.
2: Sunita, you're not wrong. Uh, You may not know that I spent 15 years teaching music to little kids, and one thing we always have to work on with them is to follow the leader. Learning to follow the leader in a musical setting usually means learning to follow the conductor. So conductors are the ones who lead big groups of musicians and help them keep time. I have always
0: wondered exactly what it is the conductor is doing up there.
2: Right. Aside from waving their arms. Yeah. (laughs) Conductors are giving that information about time, so they're being a metronome. But musicians also pay attention to the conductor in large part because of all the other important information that they provide. So conductors will guide musicians on things like dynamics, the louds and softs in a piece of music, or crescendos and decrescendos, where the music changes volume. They tell the instruments when to start or stop playing and make sure that they come in together. Paying attention to a conductor is an acquired skill, so you have to learn to understand what the gestures mean and how to follow them. Studies show that musicians are better than untrained average people at getting timing information from the types of gestures that a conductor makes. Musicians can synchronize their movements, say by tapping along, more easily. That's important for big groups like the NYO, but often small groups of musicians are set up differently. Trios, quartets, and chamber ensembles may not have a conductor at all. Instead, the individual musicians can take the role of leaders and followers. These roles can even change and switch up within small groups. One recent study tried to look at leading and following in these groups and had the Griffin Trio play together on stage and captured all of their movements. The Griffin Trio has a pianist, a cellist, and a violinist who have been playing together for decades. The study found that each of the musicians took turns leading the other using nonverbal cues. The musicians were influenced by each other's body movements and led by expressive body sway. More emotional performances had more body sway, and those performances were judged as being better, not just by the audience, but by the musicians themselves.
0: As always, thank you so much to Jared and Dr. Kate for being part of Music for PhDs. Well, I can't quite believe it's December already, but our next episode will air right before Christmas on December 23rd. So if you're going to be on the road, you need to load up on some podcasts, I'll have a brand new one for you. We'll be talking to the hilarious and very modest Jocelyn Morlock. Dr. Kate will be back to talk about earworms, the musicality of speech, and the speech-to-song illusion, which, if you've ever heard Autotune, you know all about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.